Hello, my friendly folks. Welcome back to the One Week in August podcast. I'm Kelly Carius. If you are a faithful follower from the beginning, you've had a bit of a listening break, and I apologize for my inconsistency on my end. Um, I've had so much business development happening, and I've had to make some decisions about how many things I'm giving uh, 30% excellence to when they need 90% excellent and excellence. And so I've been doing some um, culling and some changing and some automating. And I want to make sure that I invite all of you to the three-day coffee time, uh, three-day strong training. So we get together for three days in a row for an hour at 9 a.m. MST. Um, and we talk about defining a problem, which I learned about from Dr. Dan Dana. We talk about inaccurate thinking, and we talk about balancing thinking. And uh, testimonials say that you you want to be there for this, that you will um, trigger something in yourself that that will change the messages that you are giving to yourself and change your life. So on to episode nine of One Week in August, when we left off, um, our heroine was having a awful flashback um, and really dealing with a with a terrible anxiety attack that we kind of left her in the middle of. And uh, she's found her car again and and started to put her her head back on straight and decided that she needs to head back to work. The office was a bustle with the early afternoon rush of people needing money, food stamps, diapers, and baby formula. Our small waiting room could not comfortably accommodate all the people who needed help in Burton. I would bet all the revenue from every oil well I didn't own that the oil companies didn't picture this as they rolled their way through our fine landscape. I bet they still wouldn't picture it unless they were thrown into the middle of it, and even then, they might not recognize it as a symptom of their own creation. People, especially young people, were flocking to our community with the idea that they were going to make big bucks on the oil rigs or in fisheries or in forestry. They got here and found out that mostly they could, but once the money started flowing freely, so did the addictions. It didn't matter how much money you can make if you can't hold a job. This created a situation where people came to our community strong and steady and ready to work and remained in our community addicted, disabled, homeless, and often involved in crime. I sat in the office staring at my computer and rubbing my hands over my temples. I just had time to go talk to Mark before team meeting. I stood sheepishly in the doorway of his office. Sorry, Mark, I said. No worries, he said. You had a meltdown. It happens. Now please tell me how you are actually doing. Mark's thoughts flickered to his own history of emotional outbursts. I'm terrible, hating that I can't seem to make anything better for anyone. I wonder if this is the right job for me. I can't stop thinking about Mariah and Jonas. Not your case. (laughs) I couldn't help thinking about how unhelpful that comment was. I stayed silent. Mark launched into an unhelpful lecture about boundaries, limits, protecting our own emotions, and keeping ourselves well so that we could help others. Supervisor, though he may be, 
I thought right then that Mark didn't understand the first thing about human nature, about attaching to others and about letting yourself be vulnerable. I tuned him out about three sentences in, nodding in the right places and pretending to be listening. While he was talking, my mind started wandering towards ideas about how I could get more information about Mariah and Jonas, how I could stay involved in their lives, and always was the underlying current of wanting to save all the children. Mark's lecture seemed to go on forever until another worker, Michael, popped his head in to let Mark know that everyone was waiting for us at team meeting. The gaggle of social workers and support staff could be heard while we walked down the hall. As we entered the room, I caught the phrase, bush babies, and all went silent. Mark did not tolerate gossip and in particular could not stand irreverent comments about our clients. Bush babies could mean anything from rednecks to indigenous people, and it wasn't an acceptable phrase in our office. Used, yes, but only when Mark wasn't around. That'll be enough of that, Mark said. He didn't belabor it. Maybe he was all worn out from the lecture he'd already given me. Welcome, everyone. Helen will be about 20 minutes late. I'm glad everyone could make it. It was a rare team meeting when the whole staff was present. Usually at least one or two people were away. This was a big week, though, and everyone wanted to know what was happening. To their credit, everyone refrained about moaning about Helen not being present, knowing that her case wouldn't be discussed until she was there. Mark typically opened up the meeting by inviting anyone to throw out difficult cases. A couple of cases were thrown out sheepishly, the workers knowing that in comparison to the other things going on, their cases were pretty simple. Helen entered the meeting without fanfare. Mark, knowing that the crowd had a thirst for details, let Helen get settled in, and then said, As you all know, everything that happens here is confidential. I want everyone to understand what happened with the situation yesterday so that there is no incorrect information floating around the office. He stared in the direction of the bush baby comment. Helen, please give us a full briefing of what happened yesterday. As usual, none of this information leaves this room. Thanks, Mark. Helen looked around the table and said, You know, I'm going to let Anna start this off. She was there from the beginning. I was grateful for Helen's acknowledgement and actually found myself ready and eager to talk about the experience. I felt okay as I talked about waiting outside the house, reluctant to enter. But as I talked about hearing the shots and finding the children, my heart started racing, panic and anxiety rising. And then the images I didn't share, again flashing like a strobe-lit disco, blood imprinting the walls, the sounds of the children, the body. As I entered my head, the words faded from my mouth and Helen quickly picked up the story. After Helen's briefing, as the team dealt with other business, Helen quietly asked me to meet in her office after the meeting. I looked around Helen's homey office. Our spaces were small, just enough room for a filing cabinet, desk, and chair, but Helen's space was decorated in such a peaceful way Inspirational posters splashed the walls, and a bulletin board existed solely for the display of her children's art and pictures. I vowed again to actually do something with my office. Maybe it would help me like to be there. How do you do it, Helen? Do what, she asked. Stay together and keep your perspective. How do you do it? Helen laughed. You're judging from outside appearances. If there's anything a social worker needs to learn, it's that what's happening on the outside isn't always happening on the inside. 
How are you doing? You didn't seem great in team meeting. My turn to laugh, but not as heartily or genuinely as Helen. Didn't seem great. I'm terrible. I'm having flashbacks and I so badly want to stay involved with the kids. And I'm mad that Mark has cut me out of the case. Helen thought for a bit. Mark doesn't know everything that goes on around here. We're supposed to build support partners for difficult cases, so if you want the job, you got it. Keep it under your hat for now, but I'll share information and keep you posted. But you have to do something. You have to go to one of the counselors about the flashbacks. You don't want to mess around with post-traumatic stress disorder, and if you deal with the symptoms now, you'll be glad later. I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't need to do that, but I will. I'll try to get in with my old counselor. Linda shot somebody, though, and she doesn't need counseling. Are you a cop? Are you Linda? Go. And take the rest of the day off. Just tell Mark you need it. Turning in her desk, she ended, You have to speak up around here. Hello, my friendly folks. Let's take a minute to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I'm not, you know, reading from a web page or, or describing a list of symptoms to you. You can really easily just do a, a search and, and find that. Um, but we know that so many people are affected by post-traumatic stress disorder and by a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which means that there's something else as well going, going along with that. All it takes is to have an incident um, that, you know, maybe somebody else wouldn't even see it as traumatic. And and that can just kind of get stuck in your brain in a really unhelpful way. One of the things that I understand is that when we have a, an ordinary experience, our, our brain pulls that experience apart and stores things in different places. The things we hear are stored in this part of our brain. Um, the things we smelled are, are stored in this part of our brain and so on. And that's why when we pull those thoughts back together, they're not always completely accurate and, and true to, to what happened. Um, and that's one of the, the issues with, um, with things like witness testimony in the, in the criminal courts. Or, you know, one of the issues even with just two friends having an argument about how something happened and, and disagreeing with how with each other about how something happened. Um, when you have a traumatic incident, that that memory stores itself as one solid force. And when you remember it, it all comes back, the smells, the sounds, the sights, uh, and sometimes too, too fast to, to even handle. And, and part of the treatment for post-traumatic stress order uh, includes breaking down that situation and, you know, really, really talking about it. And one of the things that I, I always encourage people is if you've had something happen to you, even if you, you know, often we'll look at our own experiences and say, oh, well, that should not have affected me. Um, but they do. And, and so if you've had something um, that, that is affecting you, make sure you talk about it and talk about it from the point of view of all five senses. Um, get that story out there in its completeness. Find someone you can talk to where you don't have to hold back details. Uh, sometimes when things are really ugly in our brains, when we talk to the people we love, we, 
we hold back a little bit and, and hold back some of those details. And, and then we're not allowing the brain to kind of peel that ball of memory apart and, and put things in the right place. So make sure you find somebody that you can really openly share your story with. And it might be uh, a counselor because then you can walk away and and not have to worry about that about that person. Uh, one thing that I want to let you know exists is a podcast called Out of My Mind in Costa Rica, Living with Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And a, a friend of mine named Ray Erickson uh, puts this podcast out. And if this is a topic of interest to you, uh, you will really enjoy this podcast. Um, I, I especially also like the idea of kind of um, living along the experience of somewhere warmer than um, the middle of Canada. So check that out. Ray Erickson, Out of My Mind in Costa Rica, Living with Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And one of the things that I want to do in the future is um, see if I can get Ray to come onto this podcast for an interview. So um, keep an eye out for that. Now, let's get back to the story. The Secret, Part 5. Watching, watching. Still as a frog in a log out in the bog, making cogs, watching frogs. The voices were strong. They said the foil was good. No one was here. No one could see her. They said her sitting place was right and she should be careful not to fall off the bench because the shears that she carried would puncture her through the heart if she did. Watching the children and watching the parents. So many bad parents. Bad, mad, sad, dad, sad, tad, cad, ad, fad, glad. Glad for a sunny, sunny day. So warm. The voices said the day was today. Look it, look it, look it, look it, look it. There was the little blonde girl. Mama arm puller pulling her around. Mama yelling, swing, swing, leave me alone. Mama reading, stupid mama. Mama from a comma chameleon. Get her, get her, get her, get her, got her, run. Jimmy and Linda sat elbow to elbow, completing reports and reviewing the file. Pretty straightforward, Linda said. Yep. Easy, open, and close. I'm glad we found the fuckers. The culprits were Brady Running Bear and Benny Indo. With such lengthy criminal records, fingerprints were easily available, and clear bloody prints at the scene matched them both. They probably could have said the fingerprints were there before, but the only way they'd be present in blood is if they were there during the murder. Interviews with the murdered woman's family showed that Laura Running Bear, Brady's sister, was going to blow the whistle on Brady's ongoing sexual abuse of young family members. She had been abused by Brady and had watched it go on for too long to too many girls. A recent allegation, apparently made by Mariah, had spurred Laura to break the family code of secrecy. The grandparents were distressed to the point of no return and couldn't wait to share this information with the officers. Other family members also substantiated the information. They described Brady as sick and lost. They said his family had twisted him and that he was beyond redemption. Some family members cried as they spoke of the harm that he had inflicted on others and of their own inability to help the children or their reluctance to get involved. Brady and Laura's family life had always been rocky and filled with addictions and prostitution. 
Their parents had several relationships and several children, rarely settling in one place for very long and frequently living with the children on the streets. Laura had been prostituted by her parents, while Brady was brought up to believe that he was entitled to whatever he wanted, usually satisfaction of sexual sensory needs. According to his family, Brady used every woman and child he could get his hands on. It was rumored that he was even involved in bestiality and that he had a history of hurting animals. Drugs had been an issue for Brady since he was nine years old. Laura had been given her first hit of coke at the age of six when she posed naked for the camera, convinced by her father that this is just something all girls do. Just do it because you love me. I love you, honey. Drugs and sex were a culture of this family, an unrecognizable culture for those involved. It appeared that Laura had only recently started to understand how harmful and wrong this culture was. She hadn't cared for her own children very well over the years. However, for her family, this final act became a symbol of a mother's love for her children. Maybe it was. Indo's involvement was less clear. Indo just hated Laura. He felt she was a terrible mother, like he was the crown king of parenthood. He felt she should just leave him and the kids alone and disappear, yet he continually let her back into his life. Everything was unstable for this family. Strong drug use, everything that could be smoked or needled, was used by this couple. It appeared that Indo had been selling again, but staying relatively clean. Indo's history showed that he didn't like using drugs, but he did like controlling those who did. Brady's interview seemed to be cathartic to him. He confessed to being a pedophile and begged to be stopped. He'd been using meth heavily for about six months. The police found him in an abandoned hunting cabin. Old cabins in the north, and even new ones, were left open when no one was present. It saved fixing the damage when it was broken into because someone needed shelter. Northern folks know that they often need each other to survive. Brady had been going through withdrawal, still covered with Laura's blood. He seemed almost happy to have been found. Presented with the overwhelming evidence in this strangely passionate and apparently unpremeditated situation, both men confessed. The diverse nature of the story told by Brady directly countered statements from Laura's family. Brady expressed that Laura had been abusing him and threatening him his entire life. Brady said that Laura had been watching him and threatening him for at least 10 years, and no one would listen to him. Brady said that he killed Laura because he had to, because she was going to blackmail him. No other testimony backed up his story that Laura was threatening him over the years. He openly admitted to firing the gun, which he said was provided to him by Indo. According to Brady, Indo had been pushing him to kill Laura. He told him it was the only way Brady was going to be able to shut her up. Brady said that Indo had called her a big-mouthed whore all the time. Nothing that she told anyone was true. The only way to deal with her was to kill her. This was the only part of Brady's confession that they really wanted to believe. The case against Brady would be more complicated as it included sexual abuse allegations as well. Indo was pleading accomplice, maybe. He said that he'd had no knowledge of the events ahead of time. According to him, Brady asked for the gun for an unrelated reason, undisclosed to Indo. He'd pleaded heroism, saying that during the shooting, he'd actually been trying to save her, not trying to kill her. Indo was trying to be the hero, and the courts would have to decide for the people whether he was a hero 
or a loser who ran away from the mother of his kids instead of trying to help her or trying to help his children. In the meantime, Indo wouldn't be parenting anymore, instead becoming a child of the state himself. As Jimmy and Linda worked to compile their file, the radios on their wrists on their waists started buzzing. Jimmy felt a familiar chill down his back. Well, this seems like a fine place to stop reading one week in August for episode nine. We've had all of our questions answered. Um, there is probably nowhere else this book could go, and yet we're only on page 91 of 266 pages. So I guess there is somewhere else to go. I wonder why those radios went off right at the end of this episode. Stay tuned. Episode 10 coming up. You've been listening to One Week in August with Kelly Carius. <laughs>